welcome back to the latest episode of the Master of None podcast. I am your host, Stephen, as always, joined by Westy, the regular rugby crew. And we have a very special guest uh, joining us today. We can't really believe we're saying this, but we have Connacht head coach, uh, the captain of the friendship, as we've called him now, aka the Sports Grounds. Andy Friend has joined us. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Stephen, and thanks for having me on the show, boys. No problem. Wesley, how are you? Uh, I have to ask you as well. I can't be rude. I'm all right. Yeah, I'm a bit nervous, but uh, we'll fire ahead. <laughs> Wes, this is a great day for Wesley. But uh, yes, Andy's joined us. Uh, thankfully, after great news last week, signing a two-year extension to uh, the Connacht stay in the reins for another two years. Uh, I think every Connacht fan is happy about that. So, Andy, look, we've a few questions for you. I think we'll get stuck into it. Anyway, we will not waste your time. Uh, we want to talk, uh, to start off briefly, kind of before you came to Connacht and your 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 previous career we kind of one of your first coaching roles we know was you worked as a skills coach under eddie jones at the brumbies uh so first of all i think we all kind of want to chat about eddie jones we know he's sort of an enigma at this stage and he he kind of plays the role as a panto villain was he was he like that back then he's always been the villain mate he's always been the villain i actually funnily enough i didn't work as a skills coach under eddie um i worked so eddie eddie employed me it's a, it's, a, it's a good story, so if you don't mind, I'll share it with you. But I was a skills coach at the Waratahs in 1999, and I was working uh, a guy called Matt Williams, who you blokes will know very well. He was the head coach. He'd actually just left, and we had a new head coach come in, Ian Kennedy. And I'd said to my wife, listen, I, I just need to get out of this. Um, and I never buy the newspaper. I just don't believe in them. So I, don't, so I said, listen, I'm going to buy the newspaper and see if there's a job going. And we bought the City Morning Herald. And on the second back page of City Morning Herald, there was a little box up there that said, uh, attack coach wanted in Japan, ring this number. And I rang the number and it was Eddie Jones. Eddie at the time, I'd never met Eddie, but he was coaching the Brumbies. So I met him. Hi, mate. And we, we, we had a chat and I, I met with him. And he, uh, we actually played. The Waratahs are playing the Brumbies the next week. Um, at the end of that game, he said, listen, we're going to send you over there for an eight-week uh, trial to see whether you like it and they like you. That's at Suntory. And after eight weeks, um, they came back and they said, uh, we'd like to offer you a job. And I got the job um, via Eddie at Suntory. At the time, he was a, an advisor. He still is an advisor there at Suntory. And in our break during the holiday, I'd come back and I'd work with Eddie at the Brumbies. I would do some skills, but I was a technical advisor for him. And then when I came back in 2002, he was the Wallaby coach and I was a technical advisor uh, working with Eddie with the Wallabies. So we've known each other since 1999. He's a great bloke. He comes across as the villain. He's got a wicked sense of humour. Very, very astute man. Uh, knows his rugby inside out. Is one of the hardest workers you'll ever meet, but a really good bloke. And that's probably the bit that a lot of people don't see. Like he, he, he is depicted as the villain, but he's, a, he's got a tremendously wicked sense of humour and he's a, he's a good man. Yeah, he seems to enjoy, uh, he enjoys winding people up, obviously, that is his sense of humour, uh, well, as what it comes across as, but is there anything he did back then when you watched him coaching that you kind of took on into your own coaching and still use to this day? I just think his thirst for knowledge, um, it's refreshing, like he, he, he constantly is seeking a different way of doing something, so even back then, um, and in fact, when he won the, so the Brumbies won the title in 2000 and I might get this wrong now, 2002, 2004, somewhere around there anyway. But so that night uh, they won the final. The next morning he flew out, came to Suntory and was working again the next day, um, just getting stuck into the Suntory stuff. So 
parked it, moved on. Like most people would be celebrating that for a week, but he just moved on to the next thing because there's always something else to learn and something else to get better at. So his hunger for knowledge and his hunger um, to be better, that, that endless pursuit of excellence, which is what I like to call it, is it, it definitely alive and kicking in Eddie Jones. Um, so in, then in 2012, was it you, you kind of took over as a head coach of the Cannon Eagles? Um, what, what kind of attracted you to Japan? Was it the kind of past experience you had uh, out there? Or yeah, so I, I, um, we went back to Japan in 2012, correct there, Westy? Um, uh, the Eagles, I had a, a, a player I used to coach um, at Suntory. He was, he was the Kontoku, they call it over there. Uh, and he invited me to come across and be their head coach. So I did. Um, I Previously, like a year before, I, I was sacked as the Brumbies head coach. Um, and we'd had a year out. My wife had had a pretty nasty accident. And I took a year out and rode a bike from the top of Australia down the bottom of Australia and tried to help her with her rehab. So, And it was during that time that, because I wasn't sure whether I was going to get back and rugby coach again. But during that period, we, we were on the, on the road, on the trail for 90, 93 days. I decided that, well, we decided, um, did a prompting for me that actually I'd, I would love to get back into coaching. Kez said, I think I'm feeling better. Let's, let's have a crack at it. So we spoke to our two boys. They came on four days of the trip with us um, up in a place called Kroombit National Park. Uh, we got lost, severely lost. The boys and I out on the bikes over these three days, but it gave us a bit of time to actually chat about the future. And I said, listen, thinking of going back to Japan. And they said, yeah, well, we love you, but um, we look quite like being at boarding school, so happy a few likes to go. So we did. We chuffed off there and uh, took on Cannon, coached them for two years, and then and then had two years back at Suntory before I came home. Was it, a, was it a big culture shock kind of initially when you went to Japan? Massive. Yeah, massive. If you can just think about it, you A, you don't speak the language. Um, B, you can't read anything. So I remember my wife <laughs> ringing me... Uh, on her first fish, uh, her first fishing, her first shopping expedition, where she was just in tears. We had a three-year-old and a five-year-old at the time. She's like, "I just want to buy milk, friendy, and I can't work out which one the milk is because <laughs> it's drinking yogurt or milk." And and I'm like, "I can't help you, mate, because I've got no idea either." So, um, it, it really bizarre. But we actually fell in love with the Japanese culture. They're a great group of people. Or they're a great culture. Um, they enjoy the simple things, actually, like they. They live for their drinking and their partying, which is uh, it's not a bad way to be. And but they work very, very hard. Um, but we've got some really good Japanese friends still to this day. Uh, and we we lived in Tokyo for seven years, a, a stint of three at the front end, and then a stint of four. Um, when we left in 2016, it was definitely time to leave. Um, you can get to a stage in a culture, in a in an environment where it was just time to get out. It was definitely time for us to get out. But we got very fond memories of, of our time there. I guess maybe maybe more so in the last few years, but are there any kind of main differences uh, in kind of the way the leagues are handled in Japan than maybe they are here or maybe they were in Super Rugby? Yeah, I mean, the game's changed so much. It's, um, you know, it's a, everything happens on one island in Japan. So uh, there were 12 teams that then built into 16 teams. There's a, there's a you know, it's, it's a huge league, but they're all company league. They're all company, um, company owned. So I work for Suntory, which is the, the whiskey and water and food and hotels, they're a massive company. Um, but we would play, you know, think of any famous Japanese companies, so Toyota, um, Toshiba, uh, Canon, 
uh, Sanyo, Panasonic, they all have footy teams. And um, unlike here, and this, I love it here. I love the, 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 the provincial tribalism here. I think it's brilliant. You know, four provinces, four teams. Um, if you're from the west of Ireland, you tend to support Connacht. If you're from Munster, you tend to support Munster. But over there, it was who you worked for. So if you worked for Cannon, well, you supported Cannon. Um, and so your, your fan base was pretty much just the employees of that company, which is a bit very, very different. Uh, the competition itself was way back then. It, it wasn't anywhere near as competitive as it is now. Um, but the influx of a lot of ex-Wallabies and, and ex-Kiwis and now um, ex-All Blacks, and now we're getting a lot of ex, you know, some European-based players going over there, a lot of South Africans. So uh, there's definitely some great footballers over there and a really good Japanese um, rugby culture and uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a very healthy competition there now. Yeah, I think Ireland felt the brunt of that success in the last World Cup, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, after your Japan stint, uh, Andy, you moved back to Australia and to coach international sevens team. And if, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but what was your experience coaching sevens at that stage? It wasn't vast, was it? No, I um, so in two thousand and. Uh, 2004, I was working at the Waratahs and I got sacked. I've been sacked twice in my coaching career, one with the Waratahs and then with the Brumbies. And we weren't going to bring it up, Andy. We weren't I, I'm more than happy up. to talk about it because as, as after, at the end of my first sacking, I got a call from a, a, a really good friend who's sadly passed away now, but he rang me. He was my coach when I was a young player. And Bob Hitchcock was his name. And he rang me to say, you can now call yourself a coach. You've been sacked. I said, oh, for that. <laughs> So in 2004, I was sacked from the Waratahs um, and I got offered a, a two-week stint with the Aussie Sevens to go over there, to go to Wellington and then into LA. I knew nothing about Sevens, but I went, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll have a crack at that because I was waiting on a... I was actually coaching the Aussie under-20s at the time and I was waiting to try and land a job, which I eventually did with Harlequins uh, in London. So I had the first six months of that year, which which I didn't have much much happening. So... Um, I went over to uh, Wellington with the Aussie Sevens team. Bill Millard was, uh, was the coach. He worked at Condit, actually. He's now with Harlequins himself, um, Billy Millard. And we had the, a, a great week in Wellington. We then went to LA and had a great week there. And I actually fell in love with the game. I thought, this is a cracking game. I used to hate it as a player because it's too hard. You know, you just, you're just running nonstop. But as a coach, it was really good because they're doing the running and you're just you're trying to manage it for them and keep them alive. So... Um, that was my only extent of sevens. It was literally those two weeks. So when I applied for the job in late 2015, heading into 16, I wasn't sure how I was going to go. I was asked to apply, so that's normally a good sign. Um, and I was lucky enough to land a job in, uh, in January 2016, which then took us to, to Rio and then a, another two and a half years after that. Is there any kind of main differences in, in the kind of the way you go about coaching with a sevens team or a fifteens team, or is it the same kind of basic player development that you have in mind? Uh, it, no, it's, it is different, um, totally different from an athletic point of view. So, you know, the, I always say if if you can play sevens on the international scene, um, you can definitely play fifteens, and 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 they're going to be robust, they're going to be resilient. Um, and they're going to be able to handle pressure and fatigue. So it, it's actually a phenomenal game. I love it. I actually love the game of sevens. I think it's, it's. Um, I always say to people that you know, there's two types of canoeing. You can canoe on on still water, and you go as fast as you quick, or, or you're in the rapids. 
and and you know fifteens is on Stillwater, and uh, and and rugby sevens is down the rapids, and just sort of hold on, do your best, and um, from a you know from a, a, an educational point of view for a young rugby player. I would always push them into sevens. You're not going to be a worse rugby player playing sevens if you want to come back to 15s, but it teaches you, you know, skills under pressure. It, it actually hones your skill base because you have to be so accurate with your tackle and your catch and your pass and your run and, and all of those things. Um, and you're under massive fatigue. So if you can handle that mentally, then you can handle the fifth game, 15s game pretty easily. Yeah, 2016 obviously was uh, the Olympic year, the first time ever I think the Australia Sevens was in the was in the Olympics. Obviously, and we you've John Porch on that team. What was that experience like going to an Olympics? Obviously, it wasn't the results that you were looking for, but you know, going to Rio and experiencing the Olympics, you know, the whole experience that that is. How was that for you, uh, Stephen? I'm going to say it was awkward, and um, it's not the response most people think. Because, you know, as a young bloke, all I ever wanted to do was go to the Olympics as an athlete, but I wasn't good enough to go there as an athlete. So when we finally got the opportunity, Sevens was going to be in there, I had this massive buzz about me. But why it was awkward was uh, it was in Rio de Janeiro, and Rio de Janeiro is not a very wealthy city. And we had this massive movement, the Olympic movement, rock up. Um, And, like, we had highways that we could travel on and others couldn't travel on. Um, and they're living below us in these favelas, which just didn't seem right. And it was awkward because, um, you know, here was all this money rocking into town that was going to be, you know, it's like a tornado sweeping through when I felt the money could be better used putting it back into Rio de Janeiro and trying to help the people. So it was just uncomfortable. The games itself, um, I loved the the village was unbelievable. Uh, We all ate in the same food hall which was massive about 100 meters long by about 50 meters wide and but all your different shapes and and sizes and and genders of athlete were there you you know your your tall basketballers to your power lifters to your gymnasts and the Usain Bolts and the Roger Federer's they're all in there just you know just normal people um so seeing all of that was really really cool and 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 being a part of uh the Olympic Games itself was was really neat but um, it didn't end the way we wanted it to. We, we ended up coming eighth, which wasn't certainly wasn't what we went out there to do. Um, our women won, which was fantastic, and and that was definitely a coaching error on my behalf. Not being able to, or not. Uh, so what happened there, fellas? They, the women played day one, day two, day three, and we played day four, five, six. And the Aussie girls were favourite to win it, um, and we actually. I remember sitting up that night, the night before our first tournament, watching the girls and cheering them on. And they won, which is fantastic. And we're all so pumped and so excited. And we had a few blokes had partners in that in that team. and But none of our blokes really got to bed because they were too pumped up, trying to wait to see the girls. And then the next morning, blokes being blokes, you know, the girls are just one. We, we've got to win. So we were so, so anxious in this opening game against France. And my coaching error was I... I should have read it. I should have seen what was what was coming, and we should have dealt with how are we going to control our emotions when the Aussie girls win. And it was so obvious to me when it when you know when when they did win and we didn't deal with it. Um, but it was a great coaching lesson about just being fully prepared and 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 making sure you stay ahead of the game. Um, so we didn't. We lost our opening game to France. We then beat Spain. We then beat South Africa. So we now got into a quarter final. And it happened to be the South Africans again. And you don't beat South Africa twice in one day. So um, we, we dropped out after that. 
Um, to step back from rugby just for a second, um, I know you met your wife while working at Outward Bound, kind of taking people on tours of the Outback, um, which is obviously something very alien to, to most of the Irish people. Um, I tell us about kind of that kind of work. I mean, it's a big, big difference from rugby. And is it something that you miss or that you would like to revisit at some point in your life? Oh, you boys have done your homework. Well done, fellas. <laughs> um, yeah, so Kerry and I both worked at a, an organisation called Outward Bound. Um, and actually we met, uh, we met, I was doing, in order to get in to become an instructor, there was a, they called it a standard course. And there was a 26-day course that um, had three days of national base. And then you started a place called Charlotte's Gap. Um, or Charlotte's Pass, sorry, and you walked up Mount Kosciuszko, which is Australia's tallest mountain, and then you spent the next 22 days walking to the sea, which is about 340 kilometres away, walking, rafting, rock climbing, just making your way there. And you had to get there. That was your your test to see whether... Um, and, and they sort of monitored you along the way to see whether you were going to be... or you were deemed good enough to become an instructor. Anyway, day two, um, our group that we were with, we were meant to pick up a, a food drop in a place called Dead Horse Gap. And we were madly lost in the Australian bush. And it was like thick. We we're in the middle of the mount, snowy mountains. And our, I remember our instructor had told us, stick to high ground. Um, but us being gung-ho and young, we're like, no, we'll go the, the shortest route down through the gullies. And of course, down through the gullies, um, what ends up in gullies? Water. What happens when you've got a lot of water? Things grow things get boggy and we got stuck down in these things. So we missed this. We couldn't find this. Um, we couldn't find this food drop. And when we finally found it about a day late, I remember, I remember walking towards and there was nobody else. You hadn't seen anybody, but you could see this vehicle, this, this Toyota Land Cruiser. And I'm like, that's gotta be it. This will be dead horse gap. And, and as we got closer, I could see someone in the car and uh, I thought, she got pretty eyes actually, and she got a nice smile. Um, and then as she got out of the car, she was wearing jeans and these Blundstone boots, we call them Australian <laughs> boots. And, uh, and I'm thinking, she looks pretty, pretty good to me. And it was Kez. And then not only that, but she had our food as well. So, uh, <laughs> so I sort of met Kerry that day. And when I finished the course, they said, listen, well done. You're going to become an instructor um, anywhere you'd like to go. And, and because it was a mobile base, we went all around Australia. And I said, I'll go wherever that Kerry's going. And they said, well, no, you won't actually. So they sent her to Perth and they sent me to back to the Snowy Mountains. And we only, only met her about four months later. Um, and yeah, the next thing, uh, we hit it off pretty well. Um, next thing she was pregnant with Joshy and he's our eldest boy. And I left, we left Outward Bound to have Josh. And that's when I told her, listen, I, I have a, a past and it's a rugby past. I played a lot of footy and I'm a rugby coach. So the poor lady met me not knowing I was a rugby coach. She, she thought I was like just from the bush, um, out in the bush. And uh, I had to drop it on her that I had this other past. And we've been, been on that trail ever since. That's brilliant. I love that. That's br- the fact that she was there with the food. She's like an angel, literally an angel <laughs> waiting for you, uh, Andy. Uh, we'll move on to your early conic days. Obviously, as I said before, great news uh, sanitary extension to stay with Connacht with COVID and the way life has been I hate to bring up COVID because obviously unfortunately everyone everyone talks about it but what, I'm sure there was a temptation maybe to head back home I'm sure it's been a while since you've been home seen your sons obviously and uh, like how big of the temptation was it to go home yeah it certainly was because we had um, at the time if you remember we had 
um, Carl Godwin here. We had David Horwitz here. We had Tom McCartney here. David Nisifora and uh, Anthony Eddy all went home. And Kez and I looked at him. We said, oh, well, maybe we just go home. But then we then just, you know, just paused for a minute and said, hang on a minute. Um, a, we don't know whether we can get back. And B, um, you know, I'm here as the, as the, as the head coach of Connacht. And, and to me, it just looked like I didn't want to desert it. Like I had a responsibility here. We were still mid-season. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of blokes who had uncertainty now around their future. Uh, so we just, it, was, it became a pretty easy decision to say, listen, no, we're not going to try and go home. We'll stay here and, um, and we'll see this thing out. And, and eventually we will get home. So we had our, we actually had flights booked for July because if you think, remember that happened back in March and we were still thinking, well, we'll still get home in July because I haven't been home yet since I've, since I've, um, uh, since I've been here. So two and a half years now. Um, but as we all know, listen, you know, things took over and uh, we haven't been able to get back. Um, but we will, we will get back at some stage. But what we felt it was really important for us to stay here and, and to be here and, and, and to basically lead um, in my role as the head coach. So that's what we've done and I'm pleased we made that decision. Yeah, and back in 2018 when you were appointed of Connacht, what was your knowledge of the team and the area prior to that appointment? Well, I was lucky enough to play uh, when I was coaching Harlequins. We came over here and we played Connacht in, it must have been 2008, um, I think, 2007, 2008. I remember the game because we won Connacht, sorry, Harlequins won 17-16 or 17-81 by a point. But I remember John Kingston was our, so I was the head coach of, of Quinns and JK was our forwards coach. He had been the head coach at Gorwegians and he said to me, um, hopefully we get to play this team kind of. I said, where are they from? He said, West of Ireland. He said, it's a brilliant city in front of you. You're going to love it. And uh, we stayed at Jury's Inn. And I remember he was, he was you know, like a, a, a very excited kid on a, on a birthday. He just wanted to take me to all these pubs where he's all drinking holes. And I remember coming out of the, we got here the night before the game and I, we were prone to having a couple of drinks before games because as a coaching staff, you didn't have to, you, you didn't have to be sober. Um, but I remember trying to fit in all these pubs and thinking, I don't have to come back to this town because there's so many good pubs in this city. So that was my recollection of it. And then we played kind of, and I just remember them being a really gritty team. And we, we played on a typical night at the sports ground with the rain coming in sideways. And, and I remember thinking, what a, what a really, like I was really impressed with the supporters because back home, you wouldn't have got anyone there. Um, but it was, you know, the terrace wasn't what it is now, but there was a lot of supporters there and they were really passionate and really earthy, I felt. So that was my recollection of it. So when I, uh, when I came, you know, when we, when, when we knew that there was a job going here, I said to Kez, it's a pretty special spot. Um, and we came over, we had the interview and the rest is history. Was there any uh, particular pub that uh, attracted you back to Connacht? No, or anything else, anything, anything in particular that attracted you back? It, it was the Guinness. Listen, the Guinness, <laughs> it, it is different here. Um, but I couldn't remember any of the pubs uh, and we only went to about two or three, but um, I couldn't remember any of them. It was just, it was a bit of a maze to be honest with you, um, or a bit of a haze, but uh, well, as we know, there's some great pubs in town and I can't wait for them to open up again. Was there anything maybe about the, the Connacht team in the, in the previous few years that you'd seen uh, that kind of made you excited to work? Uh... Well, I knew, um, I knew Pat Lamb, uh, when he was coaching at the Auckland Blues, I was coaching at the Brumby. So I knew Pat from there. Um, and I knew another guy called Christian, 
Tristan Sharp, sorry, who was uh, who was part of the athletic performance team here. And Tristan and I, I was working in Japan at the time when Connett won it. Um, and, and during his early time here, or during his time here, which I think he was here 2014, 15, 16, something like that, um, he would Skype me. Um, we didn't have Zooms back then. We probably did, but I didn't know about it. But he would Skype me once every month or so, and we'd have a chat. Um, so I, I was following the team from afar, virtually through Tristan, because uh, he was a good man and he, he actually coached my son uh, at Sydney University. That's how I, that's how I had, the, had the relationship with him. So I was very aware of, of um, Connor's success and, and watched a few of their games and was really impressed with the way they'd gone. Um, so I was aware of that. But, uh, um, yeah, in, in, the, in the couple of years, when I was in the sevens, I, I actually just had my head in sevens and I didn't watch any 15s rugby for two years. With this, the way the season and last season's been, you know, Andy, with the stop starting of leagues, game being games being cancelled or pushed back, has this been like the most difficult season as for you as a head coach so far? Yeah, it probably has, Stephen. I think um, yeah, every every season, you know, there's there's different things. I've had I've had a few really tricky years. Um, you know, we've had a couple of. I had, had the death of a player when I was at the Brummies in my first year. That would still have to be the hardest year that I've ever had to, to coach because uh, because of Macca's passing. That was really tricky. Um, uh, we've, I've had other years where you know I've lost my job. That they've been tough. So it, it, there's always, for whatever reason, rugby seasons never seem to go smoothly. Um, COVID's definitely added another dimension. Um, but it's one that I feel like that you know that we're working through, uh, and I think you know we've we've we sort of made every post a winner as best as best we can. I can't wait till we finish it, to be honest with you, because it's not normal, um, and you know just allow us to get back to what we used to consider normal would be good. And you said you mentioned that not normal. Has it been tough, in particular, for the new signings coming to Connacht? Because normally gelling with the team and the teammates is a massive part of settling into a new team and that really isn't as possible as it used to be when I'm sure lads would go over to other teammates' houses and, you know, kind of bond that way. Has it been tough for the new signings, like the likes of Papali and whatnot coming into a team and not being able to gel as well as previously? Yeah, it really has. And, you know, as you say correctly, that you know, that's one of the big things, not just the footy teams, but of any teams, you know, you, you have you need that social camaraderie together and, and they just we haven't been able to do it. Um you know, haven't been able to to, to have our, the boys, the team socials, uh, even post-game, you can't have a drink, um, which, which doesn't happen too often in the pro world now. There's, there's not a lot of drinking, but every now and then, if you know you haven't got a game the following week and you've, you know, we, we might throw a couple of cases in the, in the, uh, in the change room, um, but that would be once or twice a year, but you can't do that anymore because, you know, you, you, we're not allowed to carry, well, sorry, we're not allowed to be on public transport or in taxis, so you've got to be able to drive home. So you can't do that. So all of that sort of stuff, it's 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 just different. I'm not going to say it's it's tricky. Well, it is tricky, but it's it's just very different to what uh, the way rugby's always been, um, and I, and I think the way rugby should be. Rugby should be, you know, at the appropriate time. Anything anything else, you've got to be able to let your hair down. You've got to be able to relax and and enjoy some 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 lighthearted stuff with the with the group of people you work with. Um, so I can't wait for that to come back. Um, Andy, by, by all accounts, you seem like a very kind of laid-back uh, person. We actually spoke to Jimmy Duffy a couple of weeks ago, um, and he was saying you were great for letting the coaches kind of find their own way and kind of do their own thing rather than micromanaging them. 
is that uh, a way you've always been as a coach or is that just something you've grown into over over all the experience you've had i think i think it's the way i've always been um and really because that's the way i like to be treated so you know it's the old saying no point having a dog and doing the barking yourself so if you've if, if you've got the dog well let him bark let him do his stuff so and i always respected the coach not that i had a lot of them to be honest with you when i was coming through as an assistant coach they wanted to tell you what you what they wanted you to do now i've got no issue with pointing me in a direction but allow me to have the capacity to try and find the best way to to achieve that and if someone once said to me yeah have you they said, what's two plus eight, friendly? I said, 10. So exactly, what's five plus five, 10. Good. So you can get to the end product, but you can do it many different ways. And, and once I became really comfortable with that, which I have been for a long, long time, I'm quite happy to let somebody go about it their way. And, and sometimes I won't have seen that way that that person's trying to do it, but um, I sit back and I reflect and say, wow, that's unbelievable. I, I, I wouldn't have ever done it that way, but it, they got there, you know? So I believe in giving people space. I believe in giving people autonomy. I believe in, in, in allowing people, if they're, if they're the right people, which we have at Connet, giving them the opportunity to, to do it their way and, and end up at the, at the end point, which is probably 10. So how you want to get there, it's up to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll move on to signings. Andy, you've made some great signings, especially in the past year or so. The likes of Sammy Arnold, Alex Wooten, Conor Oliver coming in. These players all have a similar kind of team of being at other teams and not maybe being starting every week, but, you know, very obviously decent players and maybe a, a possible chip on the shoulder. Is that something that you kind of target as when you're looking at recruitment or is it that just a happy coincidence? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think it's, it's the way we have to do it here, to be honest, Stephen. So, you know, unless we have the homegrown players coming through, of which we've got some really special ones coming through at the moment, but unless we have that, then, you know, we don't have the playing budget that, that the Leinster Munster Ulster have. We don't. That's a fact of it. But at the same time, I don't see that as a hindrance. I just see it as a, as a way that, and we, we use the phrase, we, we attempt to find the rough diamond and polish him. So when we're out there looking, we're looking for those players who we see quality in them as, as athletes, as players. And we also see hunger in them not wanting to be where they are and wanting to wanting to be able to come in and make a difference and, and, and improve. So, you know, the likes of Sammy and, and well, the three that you mentioned, but also the, the likes of a Jack Anger. Um, you know, we've got a young bloke, Oshin Dowling, who, who hopefully will, will get his first cap for Connacht this weekend. Uh, he's another beauty that we, we got out of Leinster. Um, you know, we, we've got some, I believe, some really special young players coming through who in other, other areas probably didn't shine. Um, but they're getting the chance to shine here now. You look at John Porch, Benny O'Donnell, when, when Benny finally gets back up and running, Aram Papali'i. You know, there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of quality um, there within our playing ranks that, that maybe others don't see, but it's certainly the way we, we go about our recruitment. We're looking for those fellas, and, and, and uh, it's great to see them when they do come through. Yeah, you mentioned Pop Lee, and that's actually a good segue because you got him from the Meter Ten Cup, which obviously is you know a fantastic competition with plenty of talent. But it's not normally where an Irish club necessarily would go to look for players. Is there a recruitment process? Sorry, a recruitment process in place for you to find players like that, or was he just sort of so good that you kind of had to had to steal him? No, well, that, the the way we found him, um, I'll, I'll give the compliments there to our our analysts, our two analysts, Simon Kavanagh 
and Oshin Odorleg, who, um, you know, they, they do a mountain of work. And I think most people look at analysts and say, well, they must code the games and, and video the training. Well, that's part of their role. But one of their other major roles and responsibilities is to, is to sift through all the numbers, a bit like a money ball. It's probably the easiest way to describe it. So we've got a, we've come up with uh, a group of, of stats and measurements that, that um, we target. Um, and they basically run the numbers through all the competitions that are going on around the world. And, and what falls out is the likes of an Abraham Papali. And you know, there's a few other really healthy names that have fallen out of their Hoskins Tutu that no one knew. Well, Simon, according to our attention before, um, I'd never heard of him before. He's now an all black. Uh, you know, we, we were looking at, um, at another guy uh, we found in South Africa who's now killing it over in, in, uh, in the premiership with another, uh, with a premiership team. We went for him, but we didn't get him. Um, so, you know, the, the, the process of which we're going through and that, that these two blokes have managed to, managed to come up with works um, and it gives us access to players before others have, have, have found them. Uh, and, then, and then the job is to try and sell Galway and Connacht to them. And if we can do that, which we did with Abraham, then hopefully we get this perfect fit and it's a, it's a rough diamond that we can then polish. Sorry, just to intervene, Wes, before you're going, are you saying that Hoskins Satuhu possibly could have been a Connacht player before you give uh, Connacht fans a heart attack? No, what, I, what I'm telling you there is when we went to... So it said I'd never heard of the bloke, but, he's, but he was one of the first names that fell out. And, and once we inquired, we, we found out that actually uh, the New Zealand teams uh, had, had identified his talent and that he was likely to get a super contract. So we definitely approached um, and said, listen, we might have a spot for you, but... Uh, yeah, the Kiwi team had got onto it um, ahead of us. But I, I certainly had never heard of the Blake before he fell out of this, um, we'll call it the number machine. He, he fell out of the number machine. Just on the topic of recruitment, again, we were talking to Luke Carthy a few weeks ago and he, he said he got his current role um, with the Giltinis over in the, the Major League Rugby because Darren Coleman called you looking for a player. Uh, like, does that, kind of thing happen a lot between coaches is that something you've done yourself maybe is called other coaches asking if they had nifty players it happens all the time westy and you'd be amazed at um you know so you know dc's um darren coleman dc is his nickname dc rang me and said looking for a, a, a 10 um we'd actually just let luke go and i and my message to luke when he was leaving was listen you are a good rugby player um, I just think you need opportunity to play in a different environment. So when DC rang me and said, um, you know, looking for a 10, I said, well, here's the bloke. So we, we were trying to send him actually originally down to Gordon where DC won the, um, was coaching in Sydney, Sydney Premiership, where they won the grand final this year. Um, but because of COVID, Luke couldn't get there. And then when he took on the Giltinis, um, he was good enough to take him across there. So Luke's going to head off there. But it happens all the time. The, the coaching world and the rugby world is actually very small. So... What a lot of players don't realise, um, you know, I would I would get a call. It's not every week, but it would at least be once a fortnight from someone saying, "We're looking at this bloke. What do you reckon?" And if he's good, I'll say, "Mate, he's a beauty. I'd take him." But if he's not, and if you know, if they if they haven't done the right thing by the club I've been at, or they, you know, they're not a good person, um, that young bloke, unfortunately, he would never, you know, he, he wouldn't be. A lot of the players wouldn't be aware of of clubs that were looking at them but never did because a coach um, just basically said, no, put a line to his name, mate, I wouldn't touch him. Wow. 
Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago about having to play kind of a money ball in Connacht and just kind of, you know, not having the resources of, say, a Leinster. Um, and I think you said before about kind of Leinster needing to share a bit of the wealth and kind of the overall benefit that might be to Irish rugby. Um, have you kind of seen anything that makes you think that that atmosphere has changed or is that still the same? Well, yeah, we, we, we've got Jack um, Angel here with us this year. Um, and I think everyone's seen the benefit of that. Uh, we've got Oshin Dowling, and, and, and hopefully you will see the benefit of that. Um, you know, so I, I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it makes good sense to me um, as to why, excuse me, Leinster have all the talent sitting up there because that's where the, that's pretty much where the population is and, and where rugby's played. So I, I do get that, and I actually totally get the, the point around. You know, if you're from that province, you probably want to play for that province. But it comes down to a sheer weight of numbers. As a rugby player, you only get better if you're playing rugby. And if you're sitting four deep in a, in a program, in a squad, um, and you're not getting much game time, well, in my, in my way of thinking, I'd, I'd be looking to go somewhere else. Um, so, you know, Connet, I reckon one of the most important things about Connet, which I love too, is that we want to create a, you know, we want to have homegrown players. So, we're constantly trying to support our clubs um, and support rugby in Connacht to bring through the likes of, you know, a, a young Colin Riley, a, a Jack Cardi, a Niall Murray, you know, Matty Burke, all these young blokes who have, who have come through the Connacht system. Um, at the same time, we're also very aware that we don't have the playing base of other programs. So we're looking for that kid coming out of Leinster Munster Ulster who is sitting third deep and just has a hunger to want to be better. And so you pick up the likes of a Shane Delahunt, a Gavin Thornbury, a Paul Ball, a Connor Fitzgerald. They're all those sort of blokes um, who weren't household names, you know, were young blokes sitting in programs that were well behind a lot of others, saw an opportunity down at Connor, came down. And then we get the likes of the Sammy Arnolds and the, and the Connor Olivers and the Alex Woodens because, you know, they have been pro players, but again, sitting third or fourth choice in their programs and wanted to get an opportunity. So there's, there's laid approaches to it. Bottom line is if we could have 100% Connacht rugby players, we would. But until we get that, we'll, we'll, we'll try and pick the eyes out of the, out of the other province and, and get those young blokes that, that want to be successful and just want an opportunity. This season, Andy, it's been a season of up and downs. Obviously, a great win against Leinster, an amazing kind of performance and potential comeback against Racing. But then we've also seen pretty tough losses to you know Munster, Bristol, and then recently Ospreys. How have you personally rated the season so far? Uh, I'll use your word frustrating there, Stephen. It has been because we've seen the highs of some of those performances, and then and then the not so good performances, um, of which you you, know, you mentioned three of them there. Uh, and it's probably just been inconsistent. So we need to find that consistency. Um, we've got a, a massive opportunity this coming Friday night to go to Rodney Parade and 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 get another win, which we desperately need. Um, it's a team that um, they're tough. They're tough to play over there. At the same time, I think if we play our game style and we're we're clinical, and that's probably the the word we haven't been this year. We haven't been clinical enough. Um, then then we're going to battle. So. Uh, yeah, it's been a frustrating year, mate, um, with results, with COVID, with everything. But, you know, we are still marching down the road and, and have a positive outlook on it. And I keep saying to the players, fellas, it's only failure if we don't learn from it. One of the, you know, one of the things that I was really pleased with coming out of the Munster game, we fought, we stayed until the death. We should have put them away with 15 men against 30 and we should have put them away, no doubt about that. We didn't. 
the next week or the next game, we have the Ospreys. We get them down to 14 men just before half time. We have the exact same scrum, different position. But the players, because of the conversation they'd had, Paul Ball and, and Kieran Marmin do a nice little loft play and, and boiler scores. So I look at that and I go, brilliant, we've learned. And then we come out and we have a stinking last 40. So, um, you know, there's highs and lows in all of it, mate. And that's, that's probably the, that's the life of a, of a, of a rugby team um, and a rugby coach. You just don't try and don't try and stay in the in the heights too long, and don't try and stay in the lows too long. Just try and keep it as even as you can, and there's always next week, and that's what we're looking for this week. Yeah, exactly. The the, the losses to Munster and Ospreys, a few people, well, kind of in the media, were kind of calling out the leadership group within the team and the players. Can you tell us just how important that leadership group is, and how much do you actually rely on them and communicate to them, you know, on a day to day basis? Uh, to me, it's massive. Um, and again, it's unfair to call those blows. At the end of the day, it, it sits, sits at my feet, those losses. So I've got to take responsibility for that. And if the, if the leader's on the field, um, if, if we're not decisive enough, well, again, that comes back to me in, in maybe not challenging enough and, or, or, or giving them the right direction with it. So I'm not here to blame leaders at all. It's, it, you know, we own that. We all own that, that loss. Um, it's not players, the coaches. It's, it's, our, it's our loss. But back to your question, our leadership group, um, to me, are everything. Like at the end of the day, well, my style of leadership is it's not a follow me. It's a I'm here to support. Um, I have a, a key set of values which I firmly believe in and, and, I, and I live. Um, uh, and I like our footy team to, to live the same set of values. Um, but I'm here, to, I'm here to support you. I'm here to, I trust you and I want to make you better and I care about you. And... That's the type of leadership that, that I try and bring. Um, and then out of that, uh, you know, you, you try and then get a game style and a group of players that, that play with that. They play for each other. They play to be the best they can be. They play to, to you know, if they make error, they're going to learn from that and be better the next time. So I, I think the, the, the role of the leadership group, the role of the leader is massively important. And then the role of the leadership group is to, is to try and be a conduit between the role of your leader and the rest of the, or your leader and the rest of the players, and um, they're hugely important for us here at Connor. Andy, with the Six Nations about to start and the squad being announced a couple of weeks ago, obviously it's great to see the guys involved. But maybe there's a bit of disappointment on the sides of maybe Jack or, or Finlay or, or Kieran. Um, how do you kind of, as a coach, deal with players who might be kind of feeling a bit hard done by by not being in the in the national squad? Well, I'm there to support them. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't sit in that, that selection meeting, neither, neither do they. Um, so we're normally realistic with it too and say, well, what were you told? Um, and then how can we help you get in there? Because you know, every player wants to play for their country. Every player wants to be at that, at that top, top, uh, top part of the game. So, um, and then it's really there to be there to, to give them that opportunity, put, the, put your arm around them, support them and, and see whether you can help them back up there. So I'd agree with you. you know, we've only got four in there at the minute. Um, I did feel for a few of those blokes. You know, we've also got the likes of a of a Paul Boyle who's been playing great rugby this year. Um, we've got the likes of an Alex Wooden. I think he's, he's done really well as a back three player. Scored a lot of tries. Tom Daly. There's not much more that man can do at the minute. Um, and we've got a, a few others that I know when they get game time, they're going to you know they're going to turn the eye of the of the national coach as well. But uh, at the end of the day, that's Andy Farrell's team, and um, we got to respect that. Uh, continue to support our players and, and keep pushing them 
in the right direction to hopefully hopefully get them there one day. Just one other thing for me then, um, just an interview I read pretty recently um, on you renewing your contract, you said that some of it kind of hinged on support from the IRFU. Would you be able to expand a little bit on, on what you meant or maybe um, what has come of, of those conversations with the IRFU? Yeah, well, so when, when we were going through the contract negotiations, um, it was muted that the IRFU were going to, were going to uh, support us to a certain level of financial support. And, and if they did that, then, you know, through my work with, with Tim Allnut and, and Willie Ruan, I was really comfortable with, with the contract offers that we could put out there. Because one of the big things for me was, I think we've worked really hard to build this squad. What I didn't want to happen was, it, was that, you know, we would just lose the squad because we didn't have the financial support to be able to keep it. Um, so one of the things I said to Willie was, you know, you know, until you get the green light from the RFU that they are going to stump up with the money that they said they were going to stump up with, then I'm not prepared to sign. So thankfully, the RFU came through with the money that they said they were going to do. And once once that was uh, once once I learned about that, it was a pretty easy easy decision to sign. Now, whether whether everyone stays, that's up to those players. But I can look at well, I'm aware of all the contract offers that are going out there at the moment. I believe that they're good offers, um, albeit in the in the current situation where we all are in the world with COVID. Um, others may find other opportunities somewhere else. And if they do, well, that's up to them. But I can stand by the fact that I think the, the, the offers that, that Conrad have made are, are, are healthy ones. And, uh, <clears throat> and hopefully we get to keep the majority of our squad. We'll, we'll finish on a couple of uh, kind of general questions, Andy, because we know that you have to go soon. We've got a few listener questions in. I can't, we'll fly through them if possible. So first comes in from Cahill Gilmore, and he kind of asks, is there any update on the new stadium? Obviously, work was halted, but where are we in the progress with that? I'm going to leave, let Willie um, answer that. He's not here to answer it, so <laughs> he's not going to answer it here. All I know is um, the ambition to have that stadium has not changed, has not, not wavered at all. Uh, and everyone from Willie to the board and everyone at Connacht Rugby is very aware that for Connacht Rugby to continue to progress, we need that stadium. We need it for the fans. We need to have a bigger fan base coming to watch the games. And we need it for the facilities because our facilities uh, at the moment, we, we're making do with it. But, um, you know, if, if, we could, if we could improve those, our training facilities, again, we're going to get a better product. Second one comes in from Fergal Flanagan. He kind of asks, is there any major skill set difference between Irish players and Australian players that you've seen throughout your years? Any one that sticks out? Uh, without a shadow of doubt, the, the, the capacity, the Irish players' capacity to play in inclement weather. <laughs> unbelievable. And, and you look at it, and, and, you know, but it's a, it's, a, it's a genuine skill set because in Australia, mate, we play on hard surfaces and virtually every day is a sunny day and not a lot of wind or rain. Um, every now and then it does rain and it's a, not a pretty game of footy to watch because we're not used to playing in that. But what amazes me is the skill level of these blokes. You know, we train and play in this stuff every single day and their capacity to be able to still handle the football, whether it's catch pass um, or kick, it, it, it is unbelievable. So I'm mightily impressed with that, with that ability. And I would also say, I think just their kicking game, because of, again, the conditions, um, kicking and set-piece game, it's, it's head and shoulders above Australia. If, if you look at our open field running game, um, evasive skills Australians tend to be better at that but it makes sense because we play on that sort of a surface and that's what we do 
Next question comes from a Matthew Adams, and I'm told that you'll get this, because I don't get the reference, but I'm told that you will, and I'll probably pronounce this uh, rugby club wrong, but he asks, are Peter Sham or Peter Sham Rugby Club your favourite team in Sydney? Yeah. I do get that question. Uh, good on you, Taff. Um, yes, they are, would have to be. Peter Sham's, um, they play their subbies team, uh, and my son played for him, and, um, uh, and I went down and, you know, I was lucky enough at the time when I was coaching the Aussie Sevens when we had free weekends, I, I ducked down there and it was just a really good social group of blokes. Um, played rugby for the right reasons. It's a great club. Won the championship or won the, won the premiership that year. Um, but, you know, they played hard and both on and off the footy field and, uh, yeah, they're a great club. They're a great club. The, the last question we have, I think we couldn't have you on without, especially at this time of the year, without asking about potential signings or whatnot. But someone did tweet me rumours of Bill Johnson coming from uh, Ulster. Is there any uh, any exclusives you can give us here, Andy, on the podcast? I, I can't give you any exclusives. <laughs> I promise you. No, listen, we, we've, we've got some good young tens here. You know, we've got Jack Cardis, we know. We've got Connor Fitz, who I think is a really exciting prospect. Uh, we've got Connor Dean um, and Dino. Unfortunately for Dino, he just hasn't had a lot of opportunity to play rugby this year. He had a he had a game right at the front end of the season, and then he he, he broke his thumb, and then we there hasn't been other games for Eagles. Um, yeah, but he's a he's a he's a very talented footballer. And then sitting in our academy, coming up behind young bloke who, who plays for Corinthians, Carl Ford, who's a, who's a very talented footballer too. So we're pretty good with tens at the minute, Stephen. Um, yeah, leave that one on the rumour mill, mate. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, yeah, we have a few more questions, but I think we'll finish on this one because I know we're coming up in time. And I want to finish on that. You've already mentioned it, but the incredible feat by yourself back in 2011 when you did cycle you know, 5,000 kilometres from Cookdown to Canberra to raise awareness for Brain Injury Australia and Outward Bound. You did raise $170,000 and it did take you 93 days. Obviously, charity close to your heart after your wife, Carrie, did come off a bike in 2010 and suffered a serious brain injury. Tell us about just, well, physically, obviously, 93 days on a bike and 5,000 kilometers. Uh, how was your body after that? Uh, it needed a rest and it got one. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, it, it was, if, if I think back on it, uh, it, it, was, it was one of the most amazing three months of my life because... Um, what a lot of people don't know is is that the, the the road that or the trail that I took it's called the bicentennial trail it's the longest horse trail in the world um, so it's not you're not sitting on a road you're sitting on a horse trail and you're up and down mountains and through creeks and rivers and all the rest of it and the reason we did it was because for Kerry at the time um, she she needed a sense of purpose and and all the bits of reading that we'd done on brain injury and how they how how to try and help the brain recover was to take it away from clutter. So to get out of what we consider our normal life here, where there's computers going off and phone calls and all the rest of it, try and get out in the bush if you can, and then try and achieve something or have a purpose and, and have a, an achievable target that you can, you can, you can do every single day. So the, the way we worked it was I'd leave with, from point A um, with Kerry in the morning and we'd, we agree that I was going to get to point B. Um, I averaged about 65 kilometers a day, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you've got a, a bike laden with, you know, all my water, my panniers, all my sleeping gear, um, emergency gear, and you're just heading off into the bush. Um, like it's a, it's a heavier bikes and you're crossing the said, you, I think I climbed the Himalayas the equivalent of 10 times. So we did 85 kilometers of climbing. Um, 
and you're in the middle of middle of Australian bush, you're just not seeing people. So you're out there on your own. But I would leave point A and I'd get to point B. And Kez's job was to drive the car to get to point B. She couldn't follow the route that I was on. So she would have to map out her route to get to point B. So it might only be 80 kilometres or 60 kilometres and she might have to do 250k of driving. And she never missed a beat with it. So I would arrive at that point. It would just be a, it'd be a reference point on the map. We'd say we're going to meet there. And she would be there with her tent and she'd have the fire sent up. She would have set up the tent. She would have set the fire up. I would arrive. She cooks a meal. I'd fall, eat the meal, fall asleep, wake up in the morning, five o'clock, get up and do it again. I'll say, I'll meet you at point, point B tonight. And we do that. Sometimes there was two or three days in between because um, I couldn't get to where a, a, a drop-off point where she could be. So there's a few occasions where I had a couple of nights out on my own uh, and then I'd meet her two days' time. There's a few occasions where I got horrendously lost and I didn't see her that night. Um, and then we tried to have radio contact and we couldn't find each other. And so anyway, listen, it was a pretty incredible adventure. But uh, what, we, what came out of it was um, some great fundraising, um, but more importantly, a Kerry that uh, had found her sense of purpose again and had found a way of um, being successful at something again. And, and, uh, and we got a very happy and healthy lady out of it, which was which was the main target. Yeah, just incredible. And I think we're all delighted, obviously, that she's feeling well and feeling a lot better since. And I think, I think everyone in Connacht, whether who lives here and supports here, has been delighted with how yourself and uh, Kerry have really, uh, you know, kind of indulged in the culture of Connacht and met, kind of met at your home. We can see in the background here of your picture, you have a nice uh, a painting of Down by the Spanish Arch. Uh, and I think everyone is delighted that you have done that so look at Andy we've taken up enough of your time uh, again I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast it really does mean a lot we wish you the best of luck uh, Friday and in future obviously with Connacht we'll be supporting you and hopefully in the actual sports ground uh, in, in uh, soon uh, soon times so thanks Andy appreciate it cheers Stephen cheers Westy and thanks for the questions boys and thanks for your ongoing support love, love to see you in your Connacht tops too fellas <laughs> yeah, no problem thanks Andy good luck <laughs>